Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is attorney and writer Vanessa A.B. Vanessa is a social media editor and now associate editor at Current Affairs Magazine. On this episode, we cover the role of social media in our politics, whether writers need to be on Twitter, Vanessa's ideological and religious journey, prison reform versus abolition, hashtag me too, the boring importance of antitrust law, how standard labor contracts restrict our freedoms, the revolving door between regulators and the companies they used to regulate, and why innovation may actually be better under socialism. I should note that there were some audio issues with this episode. Some processors can't keep up with the recording software I use. I did what I could, and I'm looking into workarounds for future episodes. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hi. Uh, so I, I think uh, I found you, I, I know I found you through Current Affairs, um, which is my favorite magazine on <laughs> the internet and in my bedroom. Um, and can you just tell us a little bit of how you came to be Current Affairs uh, social media editor? Oh, it's like the least dramatic story ever. Um, during the 2016 posting wars, I was very, <laughs> I was very vocal on Facebook, and I think Nathan must have seen some of my loud opinions, and so he reached out out of the blue and asked me if I was interested in writing for the magazine, and I was like, definitely, except I never have any ideas, so I'll get back to you in several years when something, you know, when um, when something comes up. Um, but yeah, so I wrote a couple of pieces for the magazine and then, um, and then Nathan reached out and gave me the keys to the Twitter kingdom. It was very, um, anticlimactic, you know, he was just like, here's a password you should tweet for us. <laughs> so, oh, so, so you posted your way into a pivotal role in, in at least my <laughs> newsfeed and social media. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny. So a lot of people say like Twitter is not real life. Um, and to some extent that's true. But then like I look at Trump and it's like without Twitter, he wouldn't be the president. Yeah. Um, how do you think about social media and the role it's playing in our politics? I think like like all social media and not just Twitter, I think it has real potential to help organize people, to help amplify, amplify people. Um I think that something that I've heard Brianna Gray, who's another, who's a former editor at Current Affairs and, and my friend say a lot, and I think I agree with that, is that Twitter is a really um, democratizing tool, you know? So it used to be that you had to go through all these gatekeepers to write for certain publications to get your perspective in the mix, uh, particularly if you hadn't gone to the right schools or you didn't have the right pedigree or you just didn't have the right face, uh, ethnic background, religious background, all these things. And um, I think Twitter has allowed people to kind of cut through that. I think it's allowed, um, you know, at least in the writing world, it's allowed editors to reach out directly to new voices. Um, and, and vice versa. Uh, and it's allowed people to really find each other. And I, I think there's, um, there are downsides to it too. I mean, I, I don't know when this episode will come out, but for instance, there are like the political chapter of the DSA, I guess in Los Angeles. I, I don't even have friends in that mm -hmm. chapter, but I feel like I'm pretty up to date to some real, you know, serious issues that the chapter is having. And it's, 
on the one hand, you know, like it's important to air out these things, particularly if you've tried other channels to vent. On the other hand, it's it's all out there, you know, and and Twitter allows information to spread really mm -hmm. quickly, misinformation to spread really quickly. Things go viral that might be false. The correction never goes viral. So <laughs> I don't know. It's a mixed yeah. bag. Yeah, I, it's been so I was a non Twitter user for years. Mm -hmm. And then like, I kind of knew how it worked. And then I started lurking probably a year ago. And then like, as I started writing and wanted to get more into like freelance journalism, I realized I had to be on Twitter. It was kind of non negotiable. Mm -hmm. And it's been kind of fun. It's sort of like I have almost no followers. So anything I tweet usually just like getting no response. And it just feels very weird. It's like if no one's listening, it's like a tree falling the forest or something. Um, <laughs> but then I'm just like, all right, so I'm putting all these things out there, which could like, they're just out there forever unless I decide to go back and delete mm -hmm. them. Um, and then it could be used against me in some way in the future. And like, I don't know if I want to have like my 25 year old opinion just like haunt me for the rest of my career. At the same time, you know, it does matter and people um, clapping back to like powerful people posting on Twitter, like, you know, Trump says something stupid or like Trump supporter says something mm -hmm. stupid and they're prominent. And the top reply is like a substantive criticism of it that everybody else sees. Like, I got to think that it's reaching somebody. Yeah. At least that's my hope. What do you mean when you say that, that you, you felt like you had to be on Twitter to freelance? I guess I just see how journalists like talk to each other on, on Twitter and like how they'll crowdsource ideas. Um, and just kind of be part of this conversation, mm -hmm. which is actually like really exciting. And it's it's very cool to see like these very long threads that are really meaty and explaining some topic that I wouldn't think I'd be reading about. Um, and like it's possible to, you know, write without be on Twitter, but it just seems like a very good way to keep your ideas out, get mm -hmm. your ideas out when they're like not fully formed. You know, I, I tend to write for a very long time, like taking months to mm -hmm. do research and put things out there. And it's just like, you know, good for some types of work, but not good for like working iteratively and, and getting like the latest uh, thoughts mm -hmm. on things, which may not actually lead to better writing. Um, I, I've definitely seen that take as well. Yeah. Um, but like, do, do you think it's actually not necessary for somebody who's like trying to do writing professionally? I mean, look at Tiny Heasy Coates, you know, he, Twitter felt unhealthy yeah. to him. It was getting in the way of his writing and it sounds like he's been very productive offline. Um, but at the same time, he had the platform to do that. You know, no one is, he, mm -hmm. he has this long publishing history. No one's going to forget about him. He's not necessarily doing hot takes. And so I think, you yeah. know, there's less of a need to know what's absolutely trending on any given day. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think I think lots of people should should consider whether Twitter is actually <laughs> worth it for their mental health. You know, I've um, one of the downsides yeah. of joining Twitter is there are writers that I admired who I found out were really mean, <laughs> you know, interpersonally mean, <laughs> defensive, um, aggressive, condescending. <laughs> Would you care to name names or would this I don't be even, a... No, I don't, I don't even want to name names. Um, and some of them I still follow because really the writing is that good. Like, um, but 
yeah, it's uh, it's tough to and, and it might just be that Twitter brings out the worst of them. You know, it might be that in real life, they're perfectly kind, yeah. genuine people. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, it's it's so easy to be uh, people probably following my Twitter would think that I'm like kind of aggressive and angry. Um, and with that last name, impossible. I know, I know. Well, I only tweet when I'm really pissed off about something, and there's a lot to be pissed off about. Um, That's true. <laughs> and but in real life, like people think it's hilarious to think that I could ever be like intimidating or angry. Um, so um, yeah, yeah, it's just easy to just put the words out into the ether. Yeah, it, you know what's interesting is I think a lot of um, a lot of Gen X and baby boomer parents and grandparents are not on Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. People who definitely voted for Trump, who I wish were mm -hmm. on Twitter so they could see um, like the degenerative behavior that we're seeing, <laughs> all the racist, mm -hmm. sexist stuff that he puts out there, the straight up lies. I think there's much more of that on Twitter. Uh, like we get to see like this unhinged side of the president. But if you're mm -hmm. a person who's not on Twitter, on Twitter and you get most of your information from Fox News, which is definitely not a channel that's going to highlight, like, you know, when the president of the United States is going, <laughs> is going in for the kill for like, you know, Kellyanne Conway's husband, you know, and like the president is tweeting about yeah. that. Like, I think there are a lot of Trump supporters that just don't get exposed to it at all. And on the one hand, I don't want to wish Twitter upon them. But on the other hand, I'm like, if you knew if you knew what we know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, in terms of mental health, I definitely have noticed like hits personally um, where I try and think big picture. I try and read like these long reports written by like very careful people on like a topic like mm -hmm. climate change where it's like a really important, uh, it seems really bad, but like very easy to also like hyperbolize mm -hmm. it. Um, and I'll read Twitter and I'll just be like, oh my God. <laughs> I'm so upset about so many different things and I was having a normal day and like, I kind of feel like I just have a very privileged life and, and, you know, my actual personal life is like going mm -hmm. fairly well. And like, then I'll take it upon myself to read about some like awful political thing and just get really yeah. depressed about it. And then like Instagram is like a safe space <laughs> comparatively. Um, and Facebook is like somewhere in between, but also getting yeah. more intense. I'm um I have a hard time being super active on multiple platforms. I used to be way more active on Facebook and then I I picked up Twitter around I mean I had a Twitter but like probably like yours I you know like I just didn't really use it then I was mostly lurking uh and then once I started started using my Twitter account actively I just kind of fell off Facebook which feels I don't know. I don't think I'm the only one. I wonder how many users they're losing. It just feels like no. a less, um, it's just a less form, a less fun platform to be on. Yeah. I mean, anecdotally, uh, most of my friends don't post on Facebook. I see like fewer views on stories and fewer birthday posts. And like, maybe it's just that nobody likes me anymore, which seems plausible. But <laughs> I think um, it seems like people are like migrating off or at least like you know, I keep a Facebook, it's for like event planning mm -hmm. uh, and going to things. My roommate dropped off entirely and uh, I'll be like, oh, are you going to this party later? Uh, your good friend is hosting. He'll be like, what party? And it's like, oh, it's on Facebook. And, yeah. you know, it's just convenient for that. Or like getting the latest like Nathan Robinson thoughts um, and seeing like him crowdsource like ideas for his, his next piece. Um, that's basically what my Facebook feed has become, which I'm okay with. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so I, I wanted to talk, I guess, a little bit about, you know, how do you describe your politics and like how you kind of came to your beliefs about the world? Mm -hmm. um, I would I would describe myself as a socialist. Um, I wasn't always that way. I was pretty apolitical growing up. You know, I was in high school during uh, Bush two. Don't remember. Mm -hmm. Like nothing sticks out to me, you know? Um, yeah. I was just yeah. totally clueless as a teenager, which is really embarrassing when you're in DC surrounded by all these amazing leftists who were like <laughs> marching on the White House, you know? Um, but I, yeah, so I was pretty apolitical and I became an evangelical Christian in my teen years mostly just out of apathy. Like I just kind of did what my parents did and they became Christians. So I just went along with it. And so that impacted my politics a little bit. I don't, I didn't give much thought to um, kind of economic ideas. I, I, I don't think I was to the right on that, mostly because as a kid, I had benefited from the welfare state. So, you know, I think it, be difficult. This was in France? Yeah, in France and then a little bit in England. Um, but but socially, I thought it was necessary for me to be a conservative because, you know, I felt that if I said out loud that actually I think people should get abortions if they want it and I don't really care if gay people want to marry each other, I thought I'd go to hell. So I was like, mm. I won't. I won't say the opposite, but I, I just won't say anything. Like I just yeah. won't state my, um, my real beliefs out loud. And, and so I was socially conservative through my very early twenties. And then I had a coming out of Jesus moment where I was, you know, I, I left home. <laughs> oh, the opposite yeah. of come to Jesus. So. Yeah. I <laughs> left home, uh, to go to law school and that was the first time that I was able to, you know, really be independent. I made new friends. I made a lot of liberal friends because there are a lot of liberals. Um, you know, there were a lot of liberals at the law school I was at. And yeah, I once I decided that maybe I didn't want to be a Christian and I didn't really you know, I didn't really feel religious. I had to really give some thought to what kind of person I wanted to be. Um, so yeah, I settled on, like, I just kept moving left, you know, like the more I thought about things and I let other yeah. people teach me and I tried to read more and it just made sense to me. Like, I just thought it was, I think left politics are the yeah. most compassionate. I totally agree. You know, um, so, so Ezra <laughs> you know, mixed bag, but one of his, uh, things that he's really <laughs> talked a lot about recently has been like politics as an identity, kind of like any other, um, and how for like many people, they're kind of like low information voters and they're like a Republican because pretty much everyone they know is a Republican. And it's just like the default mode mm -hmm. and living in Brooklyn and for you in D.C. I'd imagine like being on the left, if not actually a leftist, at least a liberal is like the default mode as well. And um, yeah, I, I've kind of noticed this in myself, like once I decided to consider myself a leftist or a socialist, um, I noticed like other parts of my kind of like default identity or default politics changing um, where like cer certain words had like a valence previously that were now like flipped. Um, so like social justice warrior is an example of something where like I started a prison reform group in college. I was like fighting for social justice. Um, 
uh-huh. but like the word was still pejorative to me because you know i had seen i'd been like kind of sucked into the whole like campus free speech thing um and i'd seen some elements mm-hmm. of, of that in my university where like there was actual like pushes against like people speaking out on something um from like a social justice identity politics perspective um but like mm-hmm. honestly current affairs is like really uh i think that's how i first started reading it, it was like nathan's writing uh, and a few other uh, of the writers like takes on defending social justice and like actually being honest about the proponents of it what they're saying mm-hmm. and how like most of the criticisms are really criticizing straw men um and finding like some really really fiery sophomore in college and then saying like this is the left um and it yeah. wasn't until i started going to dsa meetings and reading actual leftist takes on things so i was like oh okay i, I like mm-hmm. this stuff this is good so you went from liberal to leftist i would say so i i was like always it's not a bad place to start it's pretty <laughs> <Yeah>. good <laughs> i was always like fighting uh with my dad in, in high school on uh politics um i was kind of like raised by like reddit um, politically, which mm-hmm. is kind of weird because it was like I was super anti-corporate during the Occupy stuff. Um, and then my dad's like, everything in your life is made by a corporation. And like the reason that you have like a house and nice things is because I work at a corporation. And I was like, yeah. oh, wow, that is yeah. interesting. Like that is something <laughs> to think about. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's uh, I've always yeah been like on the side of, you know, the oppressed or I've tried to think about it that way. But mm-hmm. I think there's just a lot of things that. I read The Economist from my 18th birthday until about a year ago. And like, that was like where I got a lot of my political beliefs from. Yeah. Um, so like, oh, like they thought a lot about this. They're smarter than I am. Um, so yeah, it's uh, been kind of like a fun and challenging coming to my beliefs. Mm-hmm. Like the world is a lot darker now yeah. um, than it was in like high school and college. And I think part of that is Trump, but like, Part of it is learning about, you know, factory farming and global poverty. Global um, warming. But yeah, global warming, uh, mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. I I mean, I got really into prison reform stuff in college and it didn't really radicalize me, which is kind of insane. Yeah, that's um, a- <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of just saw it as like separable from like these other things. Like, well, like this is really bad, but like other things seem to be going fairly well. Um, and, and in terms of like, when you say you prison are, reform... Mm-hmm. Were you into fixing the existing structures or were you a person who believed prisons shouldn't exist? Like, where were you on that spectrum? I I wasn't totally sure at the time. I organized a debate kind of between reform versus abolition with a bunch of like Mm -hmm. experts. And I should watch the video because I I can't even remember what I asked. Um, It would probably (laughs) have a better window into what I was thinking then. Um, But I certainly thought that like, if we could get to at least a Scandinavian model where like mm-hmm. almost nobody was in prison and the ones who were, it was like unrecognizable compared to the American prison system. Like that yeah. definitely seemed like a good thing to me. Um, I'm now like, I would consider myself an abolitionist um, taking the perspective that prison should, or, or I guess criminal justice should only exist to prevent future harm and deter bad behavior. Um, and for no other reasons, like there should be no like retributive um, element of it. And when you take that, like, that just comes from, like, utilitarianism for me. Yeah. And I think your old position and your new position are not incompatible. You know, there's always going to be a transition period. 
And yeah, I would take the Scandinavian model over what we have now, like any day, like I would take that tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, something that's really interesting. I interviewed somebody this morning uh, and he's from Norway and he's a researcher on solitary confinement and other prison issues. And mm. in Scandinavia, they use solitary confinement like crazy, um, like pretrial oh, detention. What? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I think the numbers were like in Denmark, 11,000 people go through jails and prisons each year. And of them, like 3,700 spend time in solitary, um, which if that were applied to the U.S. would mean like over a million people are in solitary um, mm. at some point each year, which I don't know what the numbers are in the U.S., but like per capita actually might be worse in Denmark. Mm. And it was just super surprising because I assumed they were just better on every front on, on that topic. Um, That's really interesting. I Have you heard of Albert Woodfox? He, yeah, I was actually just listening to him today speak to uh, some Canadian radio station. Oh, he's great. I went to see him speak. He came to D.C. to talk about his book. And, you know, this is a person who was in solitary for, I think he says, something like 44 years, 44 years in 10 months. As far as he knows, like based on the data that we have, he uh, he might be the person who's been in solitary the longest who is currently wow. alive, or not just in, in the United States, but possibly yeah. around the world. Um, wow. And he talked about how, um, I think when he first got to Angola, it, there were way fewer options to even put people in solitary. Like the prison, it was mm -hmm. more common for incarcerated men to um, just to be held in like larger communal communal blocks. And then I can't remember the explanation he had for that changing uh, and sort of, you know, veering towards putting people in individual cells, but it made it harder for, for them to organize. Uh, obviously the loneliness takes a big toll on you. Um, obviously I think it meant that there were fewer fights, you know, there were just like fewer chances mm -hmm. for people to, um, to like, you know, knife each other. But uh, yeah, I, the way he, he presented it was like, he didn't think it, it didn't seem like he thought it was worth the, like the emotional toll, oh. you know, that it has to, that it has. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm working on an article on solitary for uh current affairs actually. And, um, oh, it's a, cool. it's a much more <laughs> depressing topic to read about than psychedelics. Uh, I gotta say, but, mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, the research seems to be very clear that it's like really, really bad for the people who experience it and it's actually not even good as like an institutional behavior um control mm. kind of thing like there's still a lot of violence um and it's certainly not worth the harm that is done even if it does prevent some level of like institutional violence um yeah but i i actually wanted to touch on like criminal justice and and beliefs about prison with another topic that you've written quite a bit about which is like kind of like the me too moment and oh, yeah. um sexual harassment sexual violence um so you've written a few like great articles on this um i think like can repentant sexual predators be forgiven uh mm -hmm. how to how not to talk about uncomfortable shoulder rubs regarding joe biden um do you want to just like give a brief summary of like the things that you've written about and, and your position on, on the issue yeah um so the the essay about um forgiving about well the essay asking whether 
repentant sexual predators can be reintegrated into our communities was really coming from a place of, um, you know, I, I published it maybe like the day after the Louis CK um, accusations came out and Mm -hmm. we had just gone through a string of powerful, very famous, um, very wealthy men who, who had been accused of um, sexually harassing um, other people or committing violence against them. And in, in a way I felt like that was very misrepresentative of, you know, like the reality is that there are, (laughs) there are people who have sexually harassed other people like around us, like they're in our friend circles. We might not know about them right now. We might find, we might find Mm -hmm. out um, that people we love and care about have done these horrible things. And I wanted us to think about what it would take for us, you know, in our communities, whether we're talking about our families or our friend groups or our neighborhoods, like what would it take for, us to feel like this person has a right to come back. Like, is there a way to get there? What would this person need to do? Um, And the reality is that the answer, I think the answer should probably almost never be prison, at least not prisons as they exist now. Um, But also like, it's just not practical. Um, And there are, you can think of lots of examples where, you know, the thing happened so long ago that even if you wanted to prosecute, it would not be on the table. But that doesn't mean that nothing could be done. And mm-hmm. so I just wanted us to think seriously about questions of forgiveness, reintegration, what justice means, um, who should be involved in um, in designing like a just solution. Um, So, yeah, so I just I didn't have the answers. I just wanted to, you know, it's cowardly. Like, I just wanted to pose the questions and I wanted people to (laughs) answer them for themselves and 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 maybe debate them with other people. Um, So that was my my um, goal in doing that. And then the second piece um, that I I wrote for Joe Biden, really, (laughs) it was just for him. That was barely an article. It was more like a blog post or like a personal rant. So I'm very grateful that Nathan (laughs) let me publish that in Current Affairs. Um, But I was just dismayed by the responses to uh, Lucy Flores's and other women's accusations of Joe Biden. Um, You know, we've seen the footage, we've heard the stories. Joe Biden is just like a very touchy person. He walks up to women and little girls and, you know, he, without asking, like he kisses people's heads, he rubs their shoulders, he pinches their chins, he rubs his hands on their thighs. And like, he's done this for decades. So of course, now that he's running for president and has a shot, like it was bound to happen like there were absolutely someone was going to come out and say that they were uncomfortable and the responses i saw were just so awful it ranged from well surely bernie sanders must have put up this woman you know um (laughs) and you know there's like so much footage of this happening and like if you do it to 100 people and five of them are discomforted by like a old man touching you 
like very intimately without asking, like then obviously there's going to be some it's that are going to come forward. It's just not that unfathomable. It's so documented. <laughs> I, I have videos of him doing this in Philadelphia. I saw him Gosh. speak and I just like, he just came, like, I wasn't trying to catch him in the act or something. I was just like, back when mm -hmm. I was a lib, um, <laughs> I, you know, I was excited and he gave a great speech on like labor and, um, you know, doesn't comport with his record, but put that aside. <laughs> um, he, he then like spoke with some, uh, I think women who were like married to like Iraq veterans and like maybe one of them had lost somebody in the war and they were crying and hugging for a very long time. And it seemed like, you know, consensual hugs, but like, two minute long hugs, which like, oh I've never gosh. been in a two minute long hug without dating the person. <laughs> and it just was like very bizarre to me. And uh, it would, did not surprise me at all when, when all these allegations or like just, I mean, you can see it in the videos. Yeah. So coming out. Yeah. And I saw, you know, I saw some people who were very dismissive of the allegations um, who, you know, their takeaway was, well, can't you just take a shoulder rub? You know, like what's the big deal? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I just, I thought it was really frustrating. Like just because something, I, I think that's literally a quote in my essay, but like, just because it's not rape <laughs> doesn't mean it doesn't matter. And there isn't yeah. a teachable moment here. And it's the primary. This is the part where we're supposed to fight. I mean, honestly, leftists should be fighting even after the primary, but um, yeah, like, I, I kind of don't care if it hurts Joe Biden for us to talk about this now. Like, if not now, then when? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I was speaking with a friend about this and they were kind of like, well, like, you know, what should he do? And I was like, well, if he was not a famous person, if he was not a politician and he found out if, if I found out that I touched somebody in a way that made them uncomfortable, I would try to get in touch with them, like through an intermediary, maybe. So they're not feeling more uncomfortable and apologize. Like that seems like the obvious first step. As far mm -hmm. as I know, he's taken no steps to do that. Um, and then if it was like, if I was a public figure, I would make like some kind of public apology after talking with the people individually mm -hmm. and say like, I didn't realize that my actions had this effect on people. Um, my intention was not that. And like, it's so easy. The thing is he's done none of that. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, well, what is it, it? It's been years. Like, can't we come to forgive him? It's like, you have to, for forgiveness to be the case, the person has to be repentant. Yeah. Like that's, that's right. like the precondition, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's such a I, I remember when Me Too was happening, I was like, it seems like the most radical feminists who who made claims that like women just were universally sexually harassed and assaulted. Like mm -hmm. those people were right. <laughs> and <laughs> it's just like it it, it you don't you don't even need to have all men be monsters for this to be true. Mm -hmm. If like five percent of men just serially do this then like yeah. pretty much every woman is going to have an experience. And I, I've had experiences of being groped at clubs by, by Ben. And it's like mm -hmm. very weird to process as like, a, I'm six foot four, I can handle myself, but I didn't react and I didn't, I was like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Um, but I would never like want to be like, oh, like me too. Cause like, you know, it just doesn't comport with my idea of like myself and like what a victim of sexual violence is. Mm-hmm. And yet, anyone can be sexually harassed. Yeah, and I don't think I've told anybody that. I thought until Terry right now. Cruz was <laughs> Terry Cruz was wonderful for speaking up. You know, he's um, yeah, he's he's on Brooklyn Nine Nine. He's gigantic, he was, right? He's like famously he's like very muscular. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and he was. Uh, I think it was a director, like oh, really? a male director, who mm -hmm. would do things like quote unquote playfully like pinch his butt and stuff and mm. it just sucked you know it made him feel yeah. bad um 
Yeah. I mean, power is not just like who's stronger, right? Yeah. Something that I thought was very cynical. I, I hated Alyssa Milano's reaction to... Was she, was she um, uh, Anthony Bourdain's uh, partner? No. So Alyssa, Alyssa Milano used to be on... Um, that she was she was on Charmed, which mm-hmm. is like where I got hooked on her. But she was still she used to be on that show with uh, Tony Danza, where okay. he was the chef, and she was like the little girl. She was like a child actress. This was in the nineties. This is before your okay. time. But uh, <laughs> so she's this actress, and uh, I'm pretty sure she low key got the hashtag Me Too um right movement started she didn't create it it was created by tarana burke a black woman who's been doing these workshops and had like a whole um philosophy for what she meant by me too and i think Alyssa milano must have heard about it or something but like she Mm. shared her story she had the hashtag me too and it just kind of really blew up so she's like elvis huh it's like Elvis. Yeah, yeah. So she's been in the weeds of it. She was scowling behind, uh, you know, in the seats behind uh, Justice Kavanaugh um, last summer. And yet when the accusations came out against Joe Biden, she did that thing where she posted a picture next to him and was like, I think Joe Biden's amazing. He's a compassionate person. He's hugged me many times and I have felt fine. You know, and Mm. and then she was kind of like, but, you know, Lucy Flores is entitled to her truth. But I kind of felt like, well, why the only reason to me that you would share having had like positive interactions, having been respectfully touched by Joe Biden this very moment is because subtly you're trying to discredit this other person. You know, you're trying to suggest that his accusers are overreacting or that we should all tone it down. This whole thing has gone a little bit too far. You know, like I just, I thought it, I thought it was sort of awful that she, I mean, she had a big following before, obviously she's a famous actress, but a lot of people came to know her and heard about me too, because she was so outspoken. So to see her kind of try to invalidate, other people's experiences and like really the growth of the movement because me too could encompass these other, you know, these other types of problematic behaviors that we should talk about. Um, yeah. yeah, I just thought it was awful. Yeah. That sucks. I, I didn't realize all those details and yeah, it's, that's so cynical and political, <laughs> right. To, to use your status as like uh, famously fighting for something and then be like, Oh, well I decided that this isn't sexual harassment, even though like other people, have like said that it is yeah. and it's kind of like you know believing victims believing women by default is like probably a statistically good good position <laughs> to be in yeah. um and you have to have a pretty strong case like if somebody's gonna put their put themselves out there like that mm-hmm. um especially with like biden it's like you're not gonna get a book deal for like this is like the classic like oh you know uh f- you know ford is trying to get a book deal with this kavanaugh story like it's so cynical and oh, you know yeah. just awful to to insinuate um but you're not going to get a book deal for having like joe biden smell your hair and make you feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. um so i switch i want to switch gears a little bit um actually it's quite different but <laughs> in addition to writing like very eloquently on um sexual violence you write about like some topics i would call like boring but really important 
Um, <laughs> That's so my topics jam. That have to do with like, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. I'm, I'm like always excited to read these, like things like uh, how would innovation work under socialism? Um, the need for court packing is not boring, but it does deal That's with like, boring. <laughs> yeah, the, the details of it. Um, and like the need for breaking up monopolies. Um, mm-hmm. So can you just like talk us through about like, what you think some of the most important under the radar issues are that um, are going to affect our politics in the coming years? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so in my day job, I'm a consumer protection attorney. And so um, I deal a lot with statutes that are supposed to protect consumers in the financial sector. And I've recently come around to the view that antitrust is a form of consumer protection and that mm-hmm. part of my job involves putting out fires a little bit, but like big pictures, some corporations are able to harm so many people by their sheer size, you know, which comes with a lot of power. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and but for a long time, you know, like any trust was just collecting dust. I feel like the left wasn't paying that much attention understandably like it's a complicated topic and there have been a lot of statutory changes that like have made trust busting kind of a thing of the past but there are some um really really smart leftists um you know who are historians and economists and lawyers who are now uh taking it up they're calling themselves new brandesians I guess. Um, <laughs> like, like Brandeis? Like Brandeis. Yeah. And yeah, like I, I think that, I think that any trust is, could be a really helpful tool for us as we fight, um, you know, like the expansion of surveil- of the surveillance state. Um, you know, like the federal, the government gets these, um, huge corporations like Amazon to develop a lot of their technology to then, mm-hmm. you know, kind of live in our homes and in our computers and in our phones. Uh, I think with global warming, like you look at the largest polluters in America and they're all these mega corporations. It's not actually, you know, it's, it's not really like us individuals. And so, um, yeah, like I think, I think that's Loki an area that like, is really, really important, but it also happens to be really complicated to think about. And the law is boring. So (laughs) unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's something that like I've seen just in my work life um, that seems really important under discussed. And it's like non-disclosure agreements and and non-compete agreements. Um, Can can you speak about like what what that is and like what effect that has? Oh, and and binding Mm -hmm. arbitration Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, those are all... um, corporate tools they're all like they're basically different kinds of contracts to um prevent or control the movement of labor to stop people from to prevent people from easily leaving their jobs and going to work for the competition which you would think is like a key part of capitalism as it's been sold to me my whole life yeah right um like right to work, like what does it mean if you actually can't work at like other companies in your industry? Exactly, right. And it's, um, you know, any trust tries to get to um, price manipulation. It tries to get to wage manipulations. 
um, uh, there are these companies like I think Apple got in trouble um, in the early aughts for having uh, what are they called? No poaching agreements where they would make mm-hmm. deals with their competitors to not steal each other's employees, I guess, sort of regardless mm-hmm. of what the employees want. Um, yeah. And this is a collusion. Yeah, this is like cartel behavior. It's basically collusion. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, wait, where, how did we get there? <laughs> where is that going with it? Oh, I was just, uh, I mean, I've seen this like with, um, you know, people I know, like in, in finance, there are these crazy things. Like I think it's called like garden periods where if you get to a certain level, uh, you're, you're going to have to sign an NDA mm-hmm. and non-compete that doesn't allow you to work for another company in the industry you work mm-hmm. in for like a year. And these companies will then like pay you for like the duration of that time when you want to leave. And so you've got people who are getting paid like a million dollars to not work. And they're like legally prohibited oh from working. Um, and it's just like, and this is, this is efficiency. Yeah. This is like the best. At the same time, <laughs> I wouldn't be mad if we had non-compete agreements between the public and private sector. And we, we kind of have those already, like, um, mm. you know, like legal monopolies on like utilities, for example, I mean, more in the sense of like the revolving door between um, oh. the private sector and the public sector. And so it is, you know, it's really upsetting when you see someone leave from an oil company, go to the Department of Interior as as a political appointee or a higher up, help change the rule in the help change the rules in favor of the private sector. And then you get to yeah. leave and collect your paycheck like, and bonuses, yeah. you know, on just like both sides and there are just no real consequences. And like, we have rules that like prevent, um, that will prevent people from representing, you know, from like appearing in front of certain federal agencies for like a year or two years after they leave the agency. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the answer is to kind of, prevent that revolving door but i think it has really harmful harmful effects something like five obama administration um yes. i don't know if they were appointees that's the best example yeah can you can you speak to this i i don't remember the details oh my gosh i don't remember the details <laughs> do you remember um, what agency it was though um uh it was it seemed like an important one i feel like it was doj antitrust yeah i think that's right um Let's say it is. Yeah, the Department of Justice. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll look it up after the episode and do show notes. Um, but basically, like, yeah, like Obama, you know, seen as like on the left as disappointing to say, to say the least, um, but still revered by many uh, liberals. And then you just see like the people that worked in his administration go off and make like seven figures, kind of like helping companies avoid all the regulations that were put in place following the crisis. And yeah. it's just like regular people see this and they're not stupid. And they, they go like, well, this system is clearly rigged. Um, and it seems like both sides are equally guilty. And like the details both matter. Like, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> like clearly the Trump administration is like corrupt beyond yeah. the Obama administration. And I just found lifetime. the Pete Davis tweet. Yeah. Yeah. So it is. Um, okay. It's t- he took a look at all of Obama's assistant Attorney Generals for the Antitrust Division, 
um, and there were five of them. One person went to this white shoe law firm called Cravath. Another person went to GE as the vice president of global competition law and, poli- law and policy. Uh, <laughs> another person, yeah, more more mega law firms. Um, one corporation called Chubb Limited, which I'm intrigued. Oh, it's insurance. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not as fun as it sounds. <laughs> I might get behind that person. <laughs> yeah. um, the first time I saw it, I was like, what? <laughs> but yeah, it's just an insurance company. Oh, boring. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he just like went through their LinkedIn's, right? Yeah. <laughs> like this is just primary source, you know, research. <laughs> um, these people are not trying to hide, you know, what they've done because in DC, it's just like acceptable, right? Like it's, you know, you go to these parties and it's like, oh, of course you like did government and then you do private sector to cash in. I get in on, like, recruiter the stuff emails and... all the time. Yeah. Oh my I, God. And I'm sure they'll pay you yeah. a lot more than what you're making now, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, two to three times more. But... <sighs> like i'm not starving so it's just like not appealing to me you know it's like oh it's a little bit more money but you wake up every morning hating yourself (laughs) yeah and i'm glad i'm glad you take that perspective but it means that only the worst people (laughs) go on and and do it (laughs) some of them are nice i don't know i try to emphasize you know i know people people Mm -hmm. got kids they're trying to put through college and college is not free yet so that means setting aside you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the crazy thing. Like I, the world I occupy by default, um, is one where people like, you know, have pretty good jobs and, um, making money is not seen as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I was dating somebody and like, you know, this person wanted to just like make a lot of money down the line to support a family. Yeah. And I, I, you know, realize how expensive it is to raise kids in this country, but I was also just like, I don't want to have to like just sign up for a career that makes six figures for the rest of my life just so I can like give my kids like the most opportunities. Yeah. Um, I'd like to think that there's opportunity, like possibilities, but a lot of public schools in this country just like don't really cut the mustard and, mm-hmm. and it's, and to live in the ones that do, it's like really expensive and just having children forces so many people to give up on lives of like careers that are doing good. Yeah, and- but you know, there's lots of data that shows that the biggest predictors of how well your kids will do at any schools are, mm-hmm. you know, like your household income and like if the parents have gone to college or graduate school, like your kids are probably going to be fine, which is why like, you know, DC is supposed to have so-so um, public schools and like I don't have kids yet, but I guess I'm just not that worried about it. You know, like I really think my kids yeah. will be fine. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I agree. I just, I do understand that the tendency, just like you look around the world, you see it's getting like more and more competitive yeah. and like the college admissions yeah. game is harder and harder. And it's because half the ones are on the polo <laughs> team and, you know, <laughs> um, but like, it's just, it is really, especially if you're a product of those elite institutions, you see the yeah. doors they open. Um, and I think that's like, it's easy to not know what you're missing. Um, and it's like, I went to public school. Um, and I went to a good university, but like the tippy top, like I know the level of opportunity is just like even, even greater. And the connections you make is like even more influential. Um, but that being said, like, I think that the most successful and interesting people I know have like a wide yeah. variety of backgrounds and um, it was not dependent on them like getting into a good job or a good school for them to like 
fulfill like the and a lot of really elite fancy skulls have a lot of boring people so (laughs) oh my god (laughs) it's it's really incredible like i I think that's one of the best things about going to them though is realizing like (laughs) oh okay like yeah yeah i mean i've been at some institutions where like maybe everyone there Mm. actually really is really smart but their politics are just not yeah not great at all or they're just like not informed and i mean i i I work in tech now and like there's just so many really smart people who like think that the only book to read to really understand like entrepreneurship is like Peter Thiel's like zero to one and like the absolute best like novel is like The Alchemist and like uh, you really want to just like understand the human mind. You just read like Thinking Fast and Slow and like I've read one of your colleagues is going to listen to this and be like, oh. he is talking about me and it's so yeah. rude right now. I know. I know. They, they, they know exactly how I feel for Nessa, don't they? Yeah. Great, great. <laughs> um, and like, look, I, I like thinking fast and slow and zero yeah. to one is professionally honest about what entrepreneurs are trying to do, which is build monopolies to extract as much money from the market as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just like so many more interesting things to read out there. And the fact that all of your friends are reading something is like, you just won't have a different perspective. Um, yeah. So I just get them to read Chomsky and Effective Altruism and uh, Winner's Take All has been another uh, one, non-Jared Artis. Oh, that's on my um, list. Yeah, I, I, I've only read a third of it, but I think he just understands how to speak the language mm-hmm. um, of the global elite as a member of it. And I think it's just much more persuasive than like most like lefty kind of things that would be written. Yeah. Um, there was another, another piece I... Uh, really enjoyed by you, which is I think called Innovation Under Socialism. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, and it was it was a while back, but uh, I think I had a conversation this weekend with somebody who works in venture capital, really smart mm-hmm. person, arguing good faith. And they were just like genuinely concerned with like people's willingness to innovate if there's like a really strong welfare state. And, and my take is like the opposite, which is like people want to start businesses and they won't because they'll lose their health insurance or they might starve mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and can you just speak to like that piece, um, market socialism and, and like why you think things would actually be better from this perspective? Yeah, I got some flack for this piece from the true, oh, yeah? from the true believers, but you know, I'm really all the true, true believers in, in socialism, socialism and communism who, who say that, uh, that markets are inherently bad. And I, I disagree. Mm. I think markets are a tool they're a political tool and you yeah. you can sort of shape them along like they'll take the shape they can take the shape of your ideology um so yeah i that was kind of my starting point i wanted to one of the things i wanted to highlight in my piece is that i think a lot of people don't realize currently that like the system we have to promote innovation relies on these really anti-democratic tools um, that I think have, they obviously haven't fully constricted innovation, but I think they have stopped us from reaching our full potential. You know, you just look at what it takes to file a patent and how long patents stay in place and how there are all Mm -hmm. these incentives for people to not share information if they're innovating in the private sector, it's a little bit different in the public sector, but then the public sector often has a capital problem. Like it has the issue of it, 
it needs the money to be able to do the things it wants to do. And unfortunately, that's sometimes at the mercy of the legislatures, which may not uh, prioritize like curiosity and invention for the sake of invention rather than invention for the sake of selling a product. Um, and yeah. Um, yeah, so I just kind of wanted to explore that. There was like a little bit, I, I looked, you know, I looked at a bunch of studies. Um, I can't remember if they were in psychology journals, but I looked at studies of what motivates people to innovate. And I think the assumption that money is the end, like that money is the end all be all, I think is really mistaken. And I think we have a lot of examples of that. Like you look at projects like Wikipedia, you look, you can look at, um, um, oh my gosh, the word is totally escaping me now. Um, but like people will build like platforms together because it's their hobby. Yeah. I mean, open source software is a you great know, example. Open oh, okay. source. Yeah. Yes, yeah. That's what I mean. The first time I like learned about open source, I was just like, I was working at a tech company for the first time. And I'm like, why mm-hmm. do they put it online for free? Cause like Facebook has like this open source called react. Um, Airbnb has Airflow, like all these like big companies have open source software that like a lot of companies use and rely on and they're just out there for free. And I'm like, but why? Like uh, the, I've been trained as a capitalist and it's like, this seems like a bad idea. And yeah, there's like a lot of good reasons. Like one is that like people genuinely like working on open source platforms. Engineers like really enjoy working on something that will be used by a lot of people and will make the world more efficient. They um, like problem solving. They like problem solving. It's also like, uh, very good for your brand as a company to do open source. It's like you're like mm. programming kind of started as like this communal, like we're working on these like really big, hard problems together. Um, and mm. I think that ethos does like underpin a lot of like software engineering. Um, yeah. And-, and I think the profit incentive can be really harmful. You know, I think it can, it stops people from taking risks because they're concerned that there won't be an immediate payout for their shareholders. Mm -hmm. And so there are people now who might be, who might have like great solutions to, you know, things that like who have ideas to make our lives better and just, um, you know, like it's it's just not going to come through. Like they just won't be given a chance to explore it because you know, you have to work on this more boring project that like we know has a definite stream of revenue attached to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, the most creative uh, projects and people I've, I've encountered are at Burning Man where it's like strictly decommodified and like mm-hmm. there's a lot of money are that goes into Burning Man. I am a big burner. Interesting. Um, yeah. I, uh, I've talked with Nathan about uh, getting him out there and he's like, I, I cannot possibly do he that. He, he always wears his suits. This yeah. Is true. <laughs> um, and so he, he told, he told me to write it instead. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going for the fourth time this, this coming year. You know, and I said, I grew up in Reno, Nevada when I came oh, to really? the United States. Yeah. So ah, I used to see the burners ever, come through. What was your take on them? Uh, growing really up? annoying, really dusty. Um, yeah, but yeah. I, recently have come around to Burning Man that I probably will never go. Um, but there's a really cool little art museum here in DC called the Renwick Gallery, mm-hmm. which had yeah. uh, one of its big exhibits over the last few months was art from Burning Man. 
and it was truly yeah. incredible. Um, so yeah, and that was all made like by people who were not getting mm -hmm. paid pretty much like they were volunteer artists um and they were not trying to like get into the smithsonian um and it is really like yeah there are a lot of problems with burning man but it is also like the most inspiring week of my life or year mm -hmm. at the very least um and you just see like yeah a lot of the myths that capitalism says about what motivates people are just like broken because people just like give things out for free um, with no expectation of like a compensation. Um, it's not a barter system, as many people say. It's like truly a gifting economy. And people just like create things just to see the joy in other people uh, appreciating it. And again, there's a ton of waste. Um, there's like a ton of money that goes into like helping rich people have a, the best time on the planet. Um, there are many things to be upset about, but it really is like an experiment in, in how we could be better and more creative and, and innovate in a post-scarcity society, which yeah. we can build if we choose to. Agreed. Um, well, Vanessa, I know uh, we've gone a little over uh, the time we talked about, but uh, any final thoughts? Like, where can people find you online? Any, um, anything you'd like to plug? I would like to plug current affairs. I would like to plug anything Garrison Lovely mm. has written. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm on Twitter uh, at Vanessa underscore a b like the b uh, uh like a bumblebee um bumblebee. yeah um that's it i'm really excited to listen to the other episodes of this new podcast um and i'm so happy to hear that you'll be writing more for current affairs it's really a treat to have you as one of our contributors this has been the most interesting people i know if you enjoyed the show please rate it on itunes I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.